hope and strength. This is the combination you need for a life well lived. The concoction of both love and strength. If you want to look around at the world around you, in your family life, your work life, and you want to make a real lasting impact, you will not do it without hope and strength. A meaningful and purposeful and impactful life is not found if you don't have hope and strength. And what I found is that many people want an impactful life, a life of meaning and a life with purpose, but because they have not found something real to hope in and something that offers them a real lasting strength, they end up not making the impact that they want to make. The mother who is depressed and overwhelmed. Hope is what causes her to rise up, but strength is what helps her face what is before her so she might make a great impact on her children. The struggling marriage. Hope is what causes the couple to rise up and stand beside each other, but strength is what helps them to fight for their marriage, but not only fight for their marriage, but to actually make an impact in the world around them through their marriage, because that's part of the purpose of what marriage is. The person who's struggling in physical pain, hope lifts them up and strength helps them face the pain so that in the end, the pain that they experienced might be used to make an impact. And the person who's an absolute emotional mess, hope rises them up and strength helps them face what's before them so that they might use that strength to make an impact in the world through what they've just been through. And if you don't have hope, your life will slowly continue to crumble and you will become unhealthy in your mind and in your heart and in your life. And if you do have hope, but you don't have strength, well, hope has just lifted you up. But if you don't have strength, you get knocked right over by the storms of life. The, co the cocktail, the concoction of both refreshing hope and pungent strength is found in one place, the power of the resurrection. And that is what we're talking about today. We're in our series called The Gospel, and the word gospel means good news. The gospel is not advice about how you should live, but news about something that has been done. And that news about something that's been done is what gives you hope and strength. Not some advice for you to have, but something real that has already happened. If you hear the gospel today and through this series, and it does not sound like the greatest news you have ever heard, you are misunderstanding it, or you've only heard part of it, or I have failed you. In fact, what I have found is that many people who reject Christianity aren't actually rejecting Christianity, but something that they think that it is, but it is not that thing. So in this series, that's what we're answering. What is the whole of the gospel? What is this news that is so good and why is it so good? So when I first discovered the gospel, well, when I first maybe rediscovered it or discovered it in a new way, it brought, it, I saw it like a diamond. And I looked at the world through this diamond and it brought life and it brought light into everything that I saw. 
and it changed the way I saw myself, the way I saw God, the way I saw the world around me, the way I saw people, the way I saw the church. I felt alive. And then something happened. God, in my mind and in my heart, he began to become dull to me. There was a distance that started settling in, and I didn't know what was happening. So I kept looking at this diamond of the gospel, trying to figure out what went wrong, and I studied it more, and nothing was changing. And it just, like, God just felt further and further away. And then it happened. I discovered the whole diamond mine. And what I realized in that moment is the gospel is not a diamond, but it is a whole diamond mine. And the key to life is that each diamond is a part of the gospel. Each diamond is like a shard of Christ. And the key to life is to know this diamond mine so well that whatever is before you, you know the diamond that you need to take down and use as hope and as strength. Here's what I mean. Some of you feel tremendous guilt in your life. There's a diamond for that. Some of you have sin in your life that you can't get rid of. There's a diamond for that. Some of you don't have hope and strength. There's a diamond for that. I first discovered this in a seminary class. The professor asked us, what's the greatest part of the gospel? What's the centerpiece? What's the heart of it? And the guy next to me said that we have been adopted by God. And the professor said, are you sure? Is that better than glorification, meaning you're going to be with God in paradise and there's going to be no hurt, death, or pain better than that? And the guy said, yeah. And then the professor asked him a question. He said, can I ask you, were you adopted as a child? And he said, yeah, I was. And that's when it all hit me, that there's so much division in the church about what's the best part about the gospel. What's the center of it? Is it that Jesus is king? Is it that he has died so that we can be made right in the eyes of God? And the list just keeps going on and on. But it hit me that the best part of the gospel is different for different people depending on their wounds, depending on what's going on in their life, and depending on what they need in that moment. So the goal of this series is that you might know the diamond mine so well that you would have this arsenal of diamonds and so that you would know each part of it so that you would become whole. So let me read our verses. Today, the diamond of the resurrection. Luke 24, verses 36 through 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And he gave them a piece of broiled fish. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name in all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, 
I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. First point today is the need for the resurrection. The first thing that the resurrected Jesus says in these verses is peace to you. Now this word peace, if you take it back to the Old Testament in the Hebrew, this word peace is shalom. And this word has to do with flourishing in life in absolutely every way, a whole life. Flourishing spiritually, emotionally, physically, culturally. Flourishing in relationships. And Jesus says, peace to you because there is a problem. They aren't flourishing. And they aren't whole. You may think to yourself, or you may have heard somebody say, well, I I feel good about where I'm at with my life. I feel like life is good. It feels whole. Like, I got this. And if that's the case, then you or that person, well, may be comparing themselves to others. But compared to the life that God wants for you, it's like you are living death compared to what God has meant for you. So, in other words, there's something wrong that needs to be made right. So when God created the world... Let's go back. you got to understand this. When God created the world, he said it is good. And the Hebrew word for good is another word that's like shalom. It's packed with meaning. The Hebrew word for good is tov. And it means that something has so much life in it, abundant life, that it's spilling out into creating life around the thing. So in Eden, everything was good. Humanity was made good, which means life was spilling out everywhere. Well, So the original purpose that you were created for was to take that tov, that goodness, and have it cover all of the earth. So there's a mistake that people make, and you've probably made it. You think that Eden is good. You think that at one time humanity was perfect, or Eden was perfect, but it was not perfect. Perfect means something's been brought to its end or its goal, its mission, its purpose, it's fulfilled it. But if something is tov, that means it's there in the beginning, And it has all the potential for life, the potential to reach perfection, the potential to reach the end or the goal. And so you originally were made good with the purpose of taking the goodness of Eden and having that abundant life spill over the walls of Eden and cover the entire earth. So how was that supposed to happen? Well, you have to know what you are made of. Here's what I mean by that. So when God created humanity, he took the dust of the earth. You've heard this before, but there's something else he took that you don't typically see in the opening chapters. There's this underground water in Eden, this like river of life, you can think of it, and it bubbles up upon the earth. And when you are made of both that and the dust of the earth, so when, well, let me show you, this is pretty cool. It's kind of geeky though. I don't know if you'll like it, but I do. So The underground water in Eden, the Hebrew word for it is ad. And the dust is called adama. And humanity is called adam, which is a play on words, which is saying that we are made of this special underground water stream and then the dust of the earth put together like this clay and God is the potter. And that's where that comes from. So let me tell you something very important about this water. So this water that comes up from Eden, it's like a calm water, a peaceful water. 
And in the Bible, calm waters represent life. But what happens is this water, as it rises up, four rivers form. And the further away that these rivers and these waters get from Eden and from God, the more chaotic and destructive these waters become, like waters of death. Well, that's why in the Bible, whenever it's referring to chaotic waters, it's talking about death and destruction and pain and suffering. So here's what that means for you. Because you're made of this water, the further you get from God, the more chaotic, destructive, and the more filled with death you become and the more lifeless you become. And so humanity was supposed to take these calm waters of Eden and the stuff that they are made from, stay close with God, and then bring God with them to cover all the earth and create Eden over all the earth. But instead... We rebelled, we rejected God, we ran from him, and we became lifeless and chaotic and destructive, and now, no matter what we do, even when we have good intentions, we seem to have this propensity in us to mess everything up, and that's because we're running from God. We become like this anti-Tov, this anti-Eden, and what happens is now we're banished into hopelessness because we've run out into hopelessness into this destructive world that we've created. And now look, not only are we lost from Eden, but we no longer have the strength that we had in Eden. And so we have all these problems and we don't have the strength to face them. Okay, I say all of that to tell you. The concept of the resurrection is this. Jesus, he comes into the anti-Tov, into the anti-Eden, into this lifeless and hopeless world, and he becomes the seed that is dropped down from heaven into the earth. And there, as he dies and is buried underneath the earth, he becomes the root system that digs deep into death, into the bottom pits of it, into the abyss, and he digs deep down as this root system and finds the lost waters of Eden. And then he rises up out of this death. And, and, and now watch this. He becomes the root system, and then he becomes this this trunk that is there coming up out of the earth he sprouts up out of it in the resurrection now in john 15 jesus says i am the vine and you are the branches meaning he's the root system and we have to do something that farmers do we have to graft ourselves into christ so to graft something is to take the root of something and the trunk of something and then you put a different type of tree there and it creates something new well this is what happens by faith in christ in the resurrection We graft ourselves into him. And then Jesus has the audacity in the same verses to say this. I'm the vine. You are the branches. And apart from me, you can do nothing good. Highly offensive. But here's what he's getting at. He is life. He's tov. He's abundant life. And if you're cut off from him, even the things that you do with good intentions that you try to do that you think are going to bring life, only bring more death. Even though you thought you were doing the right thing. Because you aren't connected to the life root system. So nothing good comes of it. It's highly offensive, but it's true. If he is from Eden, and if he's the God of Eden, and if he's the one who brings life, well, our only shot is him. But if you're connected to him, then life starts bursting out of you 
And now look what happens. You have hope, you have strength, and now you can make a real impact in the world around you. To endure this world and death even, you need hope and strength that only comes from the power of the resurrection. Now, many people, some of you might be thinking this, the resurrection sounds way too good to be true. You know, it's surprising. It would surprise you. I talk with people about this a lot, and, and they would say, yes, of course I'm a Christian. But then upon further digging, what they mean by that is, yes, I believe that Jesus figuratively, not literally, but figuratively rose from the dead, and his teachings on love and forgiveness have lived on. And that's what they mean by resurrection. I want to tell you something. A figurative resurrection, in the end, death wins. So there is no hope. And in a figurative resurrection, if you want strength, well, a figurative resurrection will not help you face the real difficulties, the real pain, the real suffering that you have in your life. You need something real. The real resurrection is the only thing that holds you up through the storms of life. Otherwise, you become a tree that is simply tipped over. And the greatest proof some people say, like, tell me the thing that will convince me that the resurrection is true. The greatest proof that the resurrection is true are the scriptures. This is what Jesus says. So Jesus is meeting with his opponents, and, they, and, and he's claiming to be this one who is the savior of the world, and say, okay, they say, prove to us. And he says, don't take my word for it. Don't even take my miracles or my signs as proof. I mean, those are helpful. But he says there's something greater still. The scriptures. The Old Testament. And all the way it pointed forward towards Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is screaming out, we need Christ. Where is he? We're searching for him. I could go all the way back. I could tell you right from Adam. Jesus is the new and greater Adam who passed the test in the garden and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is the new and greater Abel, whose blood that was spilled cries out not for your guilt, but your forgiveness. Jesus is the new and greater Moses, who stood between God and us to lead us through towards the promised land. And it just keeps going and going. But what you really need is you need to find that for yourself. And you need friends to help you do that. So you get into a discipleship group. And you start talking. Hey, you know, I'm struggling to believe in the resurrection. Well, with your friends, go to the Old Testament. Look at all the ways it's all been pointing towards him. Another proof. Jesus appears to, appears to more than 500 people after he rises from the dead. There's a place where Paul says, he's, he's, he's making a case for the resurrection. And he says, he's... 500 people have seen him, and most of them are still alive today. Not alive right now, but alive at the time he was writing to this church. And what he's saying is, go talk to them. You want proof? There's eyewitnesses. Or let's take the 12 disciples. All of them, except for one, died proclaiming he rose from the dead, and they saw him. Pro died proclaiming they saw him. Now, no one dies for a lie. You got to know, of all of them, 
at least one of them is going to be like, they're about, to have the cro- they're about to have the nail put through their hand because they were all crucified. And one of them is going to be like, okay, we made it up. We were kind of starving for some attention. And, you know, we were acting like little kids. Our bad. Don't kill me. We just made the whole thing up. But it never happens. They all died, crucified, tortured, so that today you might believe. Now, all of that was intellectual proof, and that's good. We need that, but there's also emotional proof right here. It says that they couldn't believe what they were seeing, and then when they saw him and realized it was him, there was so much joy that was filled up in them. Now, the question is, why does a resurrected God seem so great for us? The answer is because deep within you, you long for it to be true. Why, though? Well, C.S. Lewis is helpful here. He says, a fish likes to swim because there's such thing as water. You like to eat because there's such thing as food. So if you find in yourself desires that nothing in the world is satisfying, you can only conclude you are made for another world. That world is Eden. The waters of Eden within you are chaotic, longing to be settled by the peaceful presence of Christ, the King. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm satisfied. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside what? Still waters. He calms and quiets my soul. The waters of Eden within you are raging because you are not satisfied because you're too far from God. So go to him. He brings you back. The resurrection despite your doubts, is true. And if it is true, then the question is, what does it mean for you right now, today, in this moment? Not just in your future. What does it mean for you now? How do you participate in the resurrection now? Yes, the resurrection will give you hope and strength. It does do that. It helps you make an impact, too. Your children need you to believe in the resurrection. So you will have the hope and the strength needed to lead them well. Your spouse, your coworkers. if you want to make an impact in your workplace, you need the hope and the strength that comes with the resurrection. You are capable of so much more than you realize if you will just understand that the same power that conquered the grave lives in you by faith. When you have something real to hope in, it stands you up. And when you have the strength of the one who has gone before you underneath and entered into death and come up out, you have the life of Eden in you now. So you have the strength to face what's before you. Verse 49, it says, you receive the same power on high. Now, I want you to know this. This concoction of hope and strength. (laughs) You don't want to hear this, but I'm going to tell you what happens. If you want to be transformed... You take the hope and strength combined with trials and you experience transformation. This is what James 1 is all about. The trials that are set before you, if you by faith hope in the resurrection, you're transformed. The trials actually make you stronger. 
And then we get the imagery of this back in John 15. So Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, you can do no good apart from me. And then he says, my father is the pruner. Now, to prune a tree or a bush means you cut it. And what Jesus is getting at is the father is wounding you. The father's cutting you back. He's making difficulties in your life. He is putting you through trials. And do you know why he's doing that? So that you will draw more from the root system. So trees, when they are pruned, it causes the tree to draw life from the root system. So when you go through a trial, you are being forced as this tree to draw from the root system who is Christ. And he produces new life in you. Now, that is probably the most practical thing you can hear in your life. But you never get to the practical parts. You will never get to the useful parts of Christ and his power in the resurrection until you do something that seems useless. Until you just... You, you know what? Jesus is useful. But ultimately, he is not meant to be used, but enjoyed. He's meant to have you spending time with him, the root system. And as you do that, you begin to draw life. But you know, you're an American. And you know what you like? Productivity. And you know what seems like a huge waste of time? A whole day of the week devoted to doing nothing but worshiping God. You have nothing productive to show from that day. If you do what God's told you to do. You accomplished not one thing. You have nothing to show for it. No mark. No check. Oh, that feeling of checking something off. It's gone on that day. And if you will do that, well, you go and you enjoy God. You worship him. How weird. The mind and the heart fully engaged in loving God and worshiping him. This strange thing to say there's someone that's greater than me. There's something that's worth me giving my life over to. There's something that's worthy of me bowing down to. How weird, how useless, how unproductive. Yet it's one of the most productive things that you can do. Because by doing that, you now are resting in him. The waters of Eden are stirring up chaotic. Come on, let's go be productive. Yeah, we're fixing everything. You're destroying everything. You know what you need to do is you need to just go rest. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. So go to the calming waters of him and rest. And what you'll find when you do that is that he is the seed that was thrown down from heaven, buried underneath the grounds of death, and there, he dug in so that he could be our life. And he sprouted up out of the earth. And so many of us, so many of you, are keep tripping over him. Keep stumbling over him. And what you got to do is, by faith, graft yourself in. And when you do, you realize something. He is hope. He is life. Magnolia is running away. Do not run away, Magnolia. And that should be a lesson to all of you. Don't run away from God. Or else you lose Eden. But run to him like a child. Your arms out. And when you do, you're wrapping your arms around life, 
around hope, around joy, and around peace. And if you will do that, you will know the power and strength of the resurrection. Let's pray. God, we are tired of running from you. Running towards the busyness of accomplishing the next thing that doesn't give us more life but drains us. Chasing something to accomplish that in the end, once we receive it, has empty promises behind it. God, teach us to do one of the most useless things we can do. Worship you. So that then we might find that it's one of the most productive and useful things we could do. Stir up the waters in us so we know that there is something wrong. We feel the chaos within us. We feel the, the lifelessness in us so that we might come to you to be calmed and stilled. To be alive how we were meant to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.